I'm so glad to be part of a church that loves students uh, the way that we do. Uh, I mean, there's certainly, we have our imperfections, but uh, it's a unique thing to be part of a church that recognizes the value of our students in God's kingdom, that God is using them and uh, doing incredible things through them. And I know uh, if you have students in your family, you know that this year has been a particularly difficult year for our students, particularly in this last couple of months. Uh, just some really heartbreaking things. So uh, we'd love to just keep praying as a church for our students to be impacted by these trips, that God would use them to do great things, uh, and that God would work in their own hearts as well. Uh, so we'll keep praying for them, uh, that God would use them. Uh, but I, um, one thing that I'm missing about working in student ministry this year, actually, uh, is uh, some of the trips in the summer. If you, if you didn't know, I used to be the middle school pastor here at Chapel Street for uh, close to five years. And every summer, we would take the middle schoolers on uh, what we call the adventure trip up to Wisconsin, uh, the Wisconsin Dells. And we, I think we've got a picture here real quick. Um, maybe, yeah, here we go. So this is, this is one of the things we would do on the trip. We'd do some rock climbing, some high ropes courses. I, I love doing this, uh, so I'm sad I, go, I don't get to do it. They actually, they left for this trip uh, on Friday, and like a sad old youth pastor, I was kind of lacking in the background, hoping to be able to at least get a taste of what they're going to go do. Uh, but one of the things about this in particular that would always come up every year is we'd get the students harnessed up uh, and you would see this like white look of terror on their face, hit as they realize what they're going to do because they don't believe that that harness is, is really going to hold them, is going to keep them safe. And uh, Janae actually, she used to work at the camp and they kind of have this whole speech they take you through. They say, you know, these ropes are designed to take uh, weight up to the, the weight of like a car, of a vehicle. They, they, can, they can hold a thousand pounds, things like that. So you're going to be just fine. Don't worry about it. But you couldn't, you couldn't kind of logic it into them. You couldn't explain it to them. They, they just had this fear, this, this trepidation. And, and I think as I've been going through Romans 8, I've realized in my own life, perhaps, maybe you share this with me, there's places in our hearts where we don't believe that the harness of God's grace really has us. No matter how many times the Bible explains to us, no, it can hold you, it can keep you, it can, it can be working your heart in the worst of times. Sometimes in our hearts, we don't believe that. Like maybe if I was to ask us this morning on a scale of one to 10, how certain are you that God loves you? I think some of us, if we were really honest, would say somewhere between a four and a seven. But to dare to even say 10 is just, it's unfathomable to us. And I think that that's why Romans 8 is so important for us, because the truth is, it is a 10. We do have Sandy. We have assurance from the Word of God that God is devoted to us, He's committed to us, He loves us. And so when we come and we read this passage, it is meant to give us the hope that we all sorely need. It's meant to remind us that the harness of God's grace can hold us, that it has the capability to carry us. So we're coming to the final part of Romans 8 today which is, it's, I don't know about you, it's a little bit sad for me. I love this chapter. I really do think it is the greatest chapter because there's just so many rich truths in here that we've dug through. Just as a reminder, we've talked about how there's no condemnation, that we've been set free from the law by the Spirit of God, that we've been adopted as sons and daughters, that the Spirit dwells within us and is at work in our hearts. We've talked about how we have an eternal hope that is waiting for us, that even in our suffering, the Spirit is working and making sense of it and helping to redeem it. We've talked about how God is working all things together for his good purpose, that we are being conformed to the image of his son. And now we're going to come to the close of it. So this is, 
uh, not the end of the letter of Romans, but for Paul, it's the end of this kind of extensive exploration of what we've received in God. If you remember, this letter was being written to kind of a younger church in Rome, and Paul wanted them to wrestle through and grasp what it is that they've been given in Christ. He wanted them to understand that amidst persecution and suffering, amongst those things in their life that truly are painful and difficult, there is a God working for their good, who loves them. And I think we all need this reminder. It can't be just something that we did for a season together as a church, and now we kind of move on to the next thing. We need to let Romans 8 just sit in us for a long time, probably for the rest of our lives, until we can say with certainty, no, it's a 10. I'm certain that God is for me, that he is with me, that he loves me. So let's go ahead and read what is one of the most quoted parts of all of Romans 8, these last nine verses. This is what it says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul kind of gives us these four questions throughout this last little section. He asks us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge? Who is to condemn? And lastly, who shall separate us? And these four questions are intended to get our minds, to get our hearts to look at what we have in Christ, what's been given to us, who holds us. So let's take a look at that first one together. Who can be against us? Who can be against us? Now, uh, you guys know four kids at home, it's busy, they're getting older, they're getting into all kinds of fads, and my sons have recently gotten into Pokemon cards. Anybody have family members that have been into Pokemon cards? No? Okay. I just, I need some uh, edification that I'm not the only nerd in the room, Okay. Because I used to be into Pokemon cards when I was a kid. So it's one of, apparently it's one of those fads that's outlasted the generations. Uh, I was there when it was, when it was the first one. Not when they had like 3,000 different Pokemon. I was the legit. When the movie came out, that was me. That was my generation. And uh, I had this whole collection. I, I remember being a kid. I'd, I'd got stacks and stacks and stacks of them. Uh, and I, a couple of years ago, I was visiting England. And I found them in my mom's attic. And I thought, yeah, let's bring these back to England, much to my wife's uh, disagreement, why I needed a stack of Pokemon cards she didn't know. But I, I loved them, I kind of the nostalgia of them, but it, very, it quickly became apparent to me, you know, I, I don't need to have these, there's no reason to keep these. So I thought, I'll sell them, I'll, I'll sell them off, I'm sure there's a collector out there. So I found someone on Facebook, sold them, I think maybe for something like 60, 70 bucks, so I thought it was a pretty good haul at the time, I was happy about that. Well, then recently my sons have got into it, so I will go with them now to these collected card shops and they can buy their Pokemon cards. Well, anyway, I walked into this store one time and they have all the cards displayed in the shelf and it's got the, 
value of the card written underneath. Yeah, yeah. I get in, one of my cards was worth $400 by itself. Isn't that miserable? I could have started a college fund with those Pokemon cards. So, but I gave them away for like 60 bucks. I had no idea the value of what I had. I had no idea it was worth so much. Well, guess what? Some of us don't know how much Jesus is worth. We have no idea the value of what we've been given in the Son. We treat him as trivial. We treat him as mundane. But in Christ, God has given us everything that he has. Everything that he has. This is what Paul says. He says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? When he says, what shall we say to these things? He's talking about all those blessings that we've been going through. So what, what shall we say to the fact that we've been adopted, that we're not condemned? We should say, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The son of God is the proof of God's committed, devoted love to you. It is the proof of his constant provision to you and for you. Paul says that when we consider all those things, what he's provided, what could we possibly have left to fear? What could we face that we don't have coverage for in Jesus? He wants this little church in Rome to understand what they have. Jesus Christ is not just some get out of hell free card for one day in the future. He is the very present and active provision of God for his people today. Listen to what Paul tells us elsewhere in some of his other letters. He tells us in the letter to 2 Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Or Ephesians, at the beginning when he's opening his letter, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in his letter to the Philippians, he says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in who? Christ Jesus. Paul was a man that was convinced that in the person of Jesus, he had found everything that he would ever need. Are you as equally convinced? Are you convinced this morning? Are you persuaded this morning that Jesus Christ is the perfect provision of God for everything that you will face? Do you believe that Jesus is the real and effective provision of God for your suffering, for your ailments, for your losses? Do you believe that he is the real and effective provision of God for your marriage or for your children as they grow older? Do you believe that he is God's perfect provision for your future? Do you believe that he's your perfect provision for your past? Do you believe that he is God's perfect provision for your ongoing struggles and addictions and sins? Do you believe that he's God's perfect provision for your guilt and shame? The burdens that you carry? Or those relationships that weigh on you because you know that they're broken? The word of God calls us to recognize what we've been given in Christ. Now, Paul's statement doesn't mean we won't have difficulties. He's not saying, well, if God is for us, who can be against us? That means there's nothing ever difficult that we're going to face. But what it does mean is that when those storms come, 
when those things that he lists come, they can't overcome you. It means that there is one who is with you who will hold you together. Who will get you through it. Who will, more than that, will grow you through it. I think sometimes we chase our security in so many other things. I don't know about you. Maybe this is just me. I chase my security in so many other things when I'm anxious about my future, when I'm anxious about the details of my life. I'll go to anything sometimes but Jesus. Well, how's the bank account doing? Do we have enough there? How do my relationships look? What's my reputation like? Do people think the right things about me? Do they look at me in the right light? I'll go to the one that we all grown over but is so problematic in our country today. Do we go to the politicians? Well, who's in office and what, what, what laws are being made? Who's, who's the ones in charge? Is it the right people? Or maybe we think, well, I haven't sinned this month that I can think of. I got a perfect record. So I think I'm doing good. Yeah, you're laughing because it's ridiculous. You sinned this month? I didn't. Listen, let's... Let's be honest with each other. There are very difficult things to face. And if we try and find our security in anywhere but Jesus, if we try and find it in any of those silly things that are often fantasies, we're on sink and sand. We're gonna find ourselves lost further and further in our anxieties and our fears and our struggles and our burdens. But friends, the joy and the good news of Jesus Christ is there is one who can hold you together. There is one who does not sift shift. There is one who doesn't move. There is one who is firm. There is one who can hold you together. Let's bring all of our troubles, everything that frightens us, everything that worries us, everything that burdens us, bring it to the foot of the cross where God has poured out in the person of his son every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. God wants to meet us and hold us. Let's not come with our, yeah, but what if, or our how abouts, let's just come and rest in these words. If God is for us, who could be against us? Paul's next two questions for us are really kind of in the same category, so we're gonna look at them together. Who will bring any charge against God's elect and who will condemn? I did something uh, a little foolish a couple of weeks ago. I signed up for a half marathon in September. It was a bad decision. Uh, at the time, I thought, well, this will be really healthy. It'll be good for me. I can lose some weight. I can train. I can be with friends. But then I immediately remembered the one other time in my life where I did a half marathon where my legs became useless for like two weeks afterwards. And I immediately regretted my decision. But I, I remember the last time that I did it, it was, uh, it was quite an experience. And the, the worst moment of the whole thing for me was when I crossed the finish line. And I might have told you this story before because I'm, I'm coming to the finish line. It took me about three hours to get through the whole thing. And they track you, right? Like they have these little uh, devices you can tie to your shoes so they know where you are and loved ones can kind of see where you are. And so they know who's crossing the finish line. So as I'm coming to the finish line, maybe just a few feet before I cross it, I hear the announcer call out, well done, Jim Smith, 86 years old, finishing the half marathon ahead of me. I was 31, 32 at the time. This is a man who was almost three times my age, and he smoked me. I can't believe it. And I felt horrible, right? I mean, I, I've already felt physically horrible, but right there, that was the most demoralizing moment ever. 
apologies to the 86-year-old half-marathon runners. I love you, but I should be faster than you. <laughs> so I felt terrible. But then I saw something else when I crossed the finish line. I saw Janine and I saw my boys. And they were cheering for me and they were waving. Great job, Daddy. You did it. You did it. Do you think in that moment I cared about the guy that finished faster than me, what I thought about myself, what other people in the crowd might be thinking about me? Do you think any of that mattered? Nope. Because the ones who loved me, I had their verdict. The ones who mattered most to me, the ones whose opinion mattered most, I had their verdict. And they were saying, well done. We love you. Friends, no opinion matters more than God's. And you know what God's opinion of you is if you're in Christ? That you are dearly loved, that you are approved of, that you are justified, that you are forgiven, that you are adopted. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Understanding God's view of you is essential to growing in your faith and escaping the burden of guilt and shame. Paul asks us this question of who is it to bring any charge because he wants to make the point that the one who matters has already rendered his verdict. J.D. Greer, a pastor from North Carolina, said this. He says, God has committed all judgment to the Son. That means that everyone who has ever lived will one day stand before Jesus Christ. And that also means that the one who will judge all of the earth has already died in my place. That the king of heaven who will judge the living and the dead has already borne my punishment. That is the freedom that we will get to have on that day, friends. For those of us in Christ, we will stand knowing there is now no condemnation. If God says that you're not guilty, who is going to appeal that decision? Who's going to challenge that? What could they possibly bring against you before God to say, actually, no, not this one, Lord, when he has given his son for us? I remember once seeing a brother in Christ go through a very difficult struggle, a lot of sin and brokenness uh, in his life, and he very courageously chose to come and share that sin, come and share that with me and several other guys and I remember that as he was doing this, and because we're all terrible people, we're all thinking, well, how do we respond to this? What do we say to it? But there was one there who chose to do a beautiful thing, which is remind us of the gospel. Because this is what he said. He said, God has forgiven this man. Who are we to deny him the sin? If God is forgiven, who are we to deny the sin? That's why Christians need to be so committed to forgiving even those who have wounded us most deeply. Not because it's easy, not because it's simple, but because who are we to deny someone what God has chosen to give to them? I'm willing to bet that there are some here who worry that if you were to bring your struggles into the light, if you were to share your sin and your mistakes, that you might be rejected. That I or others might think differently of you. And some of you feel secretly like that you're truly not loved because how could God be pleased with someone like you? Well, I hope you know that if God could love someone like me, he definitely loves someone like you. I hope you know that no one can bring any charge against you. No one can condemn you because the heart of our faith is this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God is doing what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin so that in him, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. If you are in Christ, you cannot be condemned. You cannot be condemned by me. You cannot be condemned by others. And most importantly, you cannot be condemned by yourself. Or do you think that your opinion of you is more important than God's opinion of you? That stings, right? I had to confront that in myself this week. You remember the story of the prodigal son where the son, this wicked son who has wounded his father, who's disrespected his father, comes home he spent all of his money, he spent his inheritance, and the father sees him, and he runs out to him to embrace him. Sometimes when we think of this, this idea of no condemnation and, and not having a charge against us, we think, well, maybe God's forgiven me, and he's wiped out my debt, but he doesn't like me. He's not happy with me. He doesn't want to be near me. Maybe he says, look, I, I, because of my obligations to Jesus, I've canceled the debt, but I really don't want to talk to you. I want you to go back to the story of the prodigal son. I want you to remember what that father did. Because no condemnation looks like running down the road with your arms wide open, embracing someone who has sinned against you. That's what no condemnation is. And, and here's the best part. Not only does God not condemn you, he's praying for you. That's what he says. He says, this son that God has given us, he's interceding for us at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. At this very moment, the right hand of God, Jesus Christ, is praying for you by name that God the Father would pour out every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That the Spirit would work in your life. Jeff asked when we were planning this in our preaching team this week, he said, what difference would it make to your life if you knew that in the next room, Jesus Christ was praying for you? We don't need to imagine. It's true. That's really what is happening. Even right now as we gather, in the heavens right now, the Son of God is praying for us. Every one of us. You know, sometimes I have this misguided notion that God listens to certain people's prayers, prayers more than mine because he likes them a little bit more. So maybe I'll get Sally to pray for me because God really likes Sally. And so if Sally prays for me, I'm good. Jesus Christ is praying for you. Who does God listen to more than Jesus? If Jesus asks for something for your life, the Father will pour it out on you because Jesus has asked for it. There is nothing that the Father withholds from the Son and what the Son asks for is your life. God is for you. He approves of you because of the work of Jesus. You are who he says you are and you will be what he says you will be. The last question that Paul asks us is the one that we think about most often. The one we need, I think, the most. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else 
in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul ends Romans 8 with the most extensive assurance of God's love perhaps found anywhere in Scripture. He lists out all these possible dangers in life, and it's worth noting that these are things that Paul himself has faced, so he knows a thing or two about them. And by listing them, what he's inferring to us, which is a little hard to accept, is these things are going to come for us. He doesn't, he doesn't say, well, these things aren't going to come, so they can't separate us. He says, well, when they come, will they separate us? No. And then he does something that I think is, if, if it is for you the way it is for me, it's a little confusing because he, he drops these very two dark lines. He says, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, what you may not know is that that's a quote. Paul is quoting Psalm 44 from the Old Testament. And this is a psalm that was written in a time of lament for Israel, a time of great groaning and, and heartbreak. And they were calling out saying, God, where are you? Are you with us? Is this, is, is this, the, is this the moment where things have finally gone wrong and we've been separated from the God who's loved us. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants to take that lament because it is the cry, is it not, of all of us that when we face challenge, when we face distress, we say, is this it? Is this the end? Has things finally gone too far south? Is my sin too great? Is the pain in my life too great? And Paul says, no, it's not. How does he respond? He said, God has not abandoned us. He does not abandon us. And in fact, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love how John Piper explains this. He says, a conqueror defeats his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy, but one who is more than a conqueror makes his enemy serve his own purpose. Not only is God present in the midst of these dangers, not only is his love assured, but he in his great sovereign power is gonna bend the tragedies and the brokenness of your life and redeem them, make them serve his purposes. What this means is that though these dangers might hurt us, they can't kill us. Though they might knock us off our feet, they cannot overcome us. All things work together for the good of those who love God. Persecution becomes an opportunity to extend grace and forgiveness, even to those who might not deserve it. Famine becomes an opportunity to trust God that he will provide, that he will sustain you, that he will be enough. Loss becomes an opportunity to be thankful for what you have received from God and also hope that what you have lost might be redeemed. But I think that that's the hardest part of Romans 8 to grasp. Because though that we might know that up here, in our hearts we doubt. And we worry and we're afraid. And we think, Lord, I don't know if I can believe that nothing can separate me from you. Ray Portland says, Our certainty does not lie in our apprehension of God's grace, but in God's grace itself. So here's the great news for you today. If you, like me, struggle with doubt, 
your grasping of Romans 8 is not what makes it true. Your feeling Romans 8 does not, is not what makes it true. It's true because God said it's true. God has promised you this. He's assured you of this. He has devoted his whole self and his son to this. Your experience of God's grace in your life will follow your decision to trust it. And I know that's so counterintuitive for us because so often we base our trust on what we've experienced. Do we feel like this is trustworthy? Have we, have we seen that it's trustworthy? What we need to do as Christians is choose to come before the cross and say, Jesus, I don't feel it yet and I don't experience it and I need to. So I'm gonna trust you. And in that, God will reveal his goodness to you. He will give you his spirit and he will whack things through. It might not go on your timetable, but he will do it. I've seen him do it in the lives of so many people in this church, in all of our campuses, in churches around the world. I've seen the God of grace show up in people's worst moments and hold them together, regardless of their doubts. God knows how hard it is to experience his love in the midst of tribulation and distress. And I think that that's why he inspired Romans 8 in Paul's heart. Because he wanted us to hold on to something. He wanted us to have a word that says, no, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will get you through. And I think it's the same vein in which Jesus told his disciples when he was talking with them about those who trust them. He said this in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If Jesus Christ has placed his hand on your life, no one can pull you out of it. You cannot pull yourself out of it. Nothing can separate you, not past, not future, not demons, not powers, nor rulers. Nothing, no one, nada, zilch. Paul was persuaded of this and we should be too. Because you know what happens in our hearts if we would be persuaded of this? If we would take God's word and say, yes, Lord, we're gonna trust you. I think it does two things. First of all, it leads us to worship. It leaves us to put ourselves down on our knees and say, God, how extravagantly you have loved me. How scandalous is the grace that you've poured out on me. It lifts the burden off us to be the perfectors of our own faith because which of these questions came with an if? Well, like, like where does Paul say, who can bring any charge against God's elect as long as they? Where does he say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus if they? He's just telling you news. He's not giving you advice. He's telling you this is what's been given to you in Christ. Your job is to surrender in worship to it, to rest to it, to thank God for it, and to let him fill your heart when you need it. And it'll lead us to mission because we can't keep this to ourselves. How desperate is our world for a love that's not based on performance but on grace? How desperate is our world for something to sustain it amidst all these groanings and sufferings and wars? Ron reminded me at the start of the service, June 6th, we're coming up on remembrance of D-Day. So many broken things. We read again in the news this week, it was the school shooting last week, and this week I saw two churches had more shooting. How desperate is our world for hope? amidst fears and brokenness. And we have that hope. Christ, the hope of glory. It's not a new government policy. It's not a trending in the right direction for the economy. 
It's not whatever the latest cultural trend or group is that might tell us, well, this is where you can finally find identity and hope and joy and love. The truth is, all of those things are shifting sands. The only rock is Christ. And we have him. We can offer him. Those in our lives who we love, who are broken, we have an answer for them. We have a hope to give them. Jesus offers provision for all that you would face. He offers freedom from condemnation. And he offers love that's unbreakable. And it's free. All it requires is surrender. So let's maybe end by saying this. Jesus Christ is the harness in which you can lean your full weight. He can carry you. He will carry you. Trust him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son. God, thank you so much that you would not spare your son, but you would give him up for us all. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things? Truly, we can trust that nothing can separate us from your love because you pray for us, you devote yourself to us, you shed your very body and blood for us. Father, help us when we do not know what to praise we ought. Help us in our doubt and our weakness to trust the words of Romans 8. Drill these deep into our souls that we might truly be able to believe if God is for us, who could be against us? We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen. I can think of no better way to respond to this final section of Romans 8 than to come to the Lord's table together. So hopefully you received one of these as you came in. If you didn't, if you just want to put your hand up, the ushers will bring one out. But when we do this, we are doing as Jesus instructed us, first of all. He told us to do this in remembrance of him. But throughout the centuries, the church has believed in, in many different ways that this is a means of grace, that when we do this, the Spirit of God makes real to us the truth of what we've received in Christ. So we don't do this out of some sake of ritual. We do it because we want to remember that in Christ, we have everything we need. So if you want to peel off that first layer, Take the bread. I want to remind us this morning of what Jesus told his disciples on his last night, the night that he was betrayed. He said, this is my body that is broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me. Let's eat this in remembrance of him today. In the same way after he did that, he took a cup. A cup that they had drank every Passover, probably dozens of times. But Jesus imprinted new meaning on it. He said, this cup is my blood as part of a new covenant. And it's shed for the forgiveness of sins. So peel off that next layer. And when you do, I want you to drink this and remember the words that we shared this morning. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's drink this in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your table that is a tangible, physical reminder of what you've done for us. We put our hope and we put our trust in you. Father, I speak for a lot of us when I say, Lord, there are times when we are so weary and Lord, we need you. We need you to fill our hearts with the truth of Romans 8, with the truth of what your son has done for us. May you pour your grace on us again today. In his name we pray. Amen.
Would you stand with me?